Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that we could gather here today in your name. Lord, you know that we are people who are in great need, great need to hear the word from you. So we pray that you would teach and instruct us. But God, you know that oftentimes our hearts can even take those things that you say that are so good and we can we can twist and we can manipulate those things to serve our own purposes. And so, Lord, we we don't just need to know knowledge. We don't just need to hear your word. We pray, oh, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you would change our hearts and our wills to love you more, to desire you, God, to delight in you, to worship and to praise you. God, we pray that you would set us free even from the struggles of the flesh that we have and the temptations of Satan in the world, that we could trust on you more completely, knowing that you are good and you are a great God. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as we come to the book of Jonah today, it's a, it's a great book. It's a very probing book. It's short, but it, it very much probes even the very attitudes of our hearts. And it reminds us of many things, including how easy it is for us to think, even as Christians, that we are better than others in the eyes of God. To think that God loves Christians more than those who blaspheme God. That God loves Christians more than those who ridicule God or persecute God by attacking the church or those who twist the truth like cults or, or false teachers or even of those religions who seek to approach God the way they so want to approach him rather than doing it in the way that he prescribed in his word. And you may say, now wait a minute, Pastor Rick, God does love us more than those who do not love him. You know, is it not true? I mean, we are his people. We are a chosen race. We are his children loved of God. And I would say, yes, that is true. But like the Israel of old, we can sometimes mistakenly think that God loves us because we are better than others, because we are smarter than others, because we are more lovable. Or maybe it is even because we think that we might have a greater disposition or we might be more prone to believe him than other people. That there is in us some sense of goodness, but that's not true. The truth is, is that God simply loves us because he chooses to love us, that he has set his grace upon us and that actually God loves us even in spite of ourselves. And none of us have sought after God. God has brought every one of us here. Even you kids this morning growing up in a Christian home, you are here because God is pursuing you. Because God has chosen to put you in a home where your parents will teach you of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, where, he will, where they will teach you of your sin and your need for that Savior. And so even God is at work in your hearts and in your life. And if we're honest, none of us really deserves or are more prone to come to Jesus. And, and even as Christians, it's so easy for us to become blinded by our own desires rather than knowing and loving Jesus more. As a matter of fact, if people here at Kirk of the Plains really knew your thoughts, if they really heard every word that you spoke this week or they saw everything you did or if they could discern the motives of your heart, would they be so accepting to you 
on Sunday morning. You might be even afraid to come to church. I would be afraid to come to church. So it's so easy for us to look down upon others and to think that others, some people are just too bad to become followers of Christ. Or maybe another way to, to, to state that is, is to say, if God brought us to himself, could it not be that there are others out there today that God has set his affections on that he plans to bring the gospel to because he chooses to do so? And he may do so through us. He may do, th- do so through you individually or your family or maybe even through our church. He may somehow do that to bring the gospel to such people. But we so easily forget how extravagant God's love is. And when we do, it's easy for us to think that we deserve God's favor and that others maybe do not deserve it. Well, Jonah was in the same boat. Uh, no pun intended, by the way. But, you know, he's, he was sort of in that same boat. You know, he looked at the Assyrians in, in Nineveh and, and he saw them and he saw that they were his enemies and how wicked they were. And he did not want to go and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because he was afraid that they might be converted. And so Jonah defies God and he runs from the Lord. And that's what we see in verse 3. We talked about this last week, but if you look at the first two words of verse three, it says, but Jonah, you know, it says he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah, that sort of focuses our attention upon him and upon his defiance against the Lord. But today, what I want us to do is to look at verse four. And I want you to look at the opening verses, the opening words of verse four. And in, in contrast to what it says in verse 3, but Jonah, in first, verse 4, it says, but the Lord, but the Lord. You know, in essence, what the storyteller is doing here is showing us that in verse 3, Jonah is defiant. But in verse 4, God is about to act. And he does so in all his sovereignty, in all his control, in all his rule over his creation. And I want us to see three things today as we think about God's sovereignty and and how he is a sovereign God who pursues even those who sin against him. I want us to see, first of all, the reality of God's sovereignty. Second of all, the responses to God's sovereignty. And third, the results of God's sovereignty. And so let's just move through this passage this morning, if we could. First of all, in verse 4, we see the reality of God's sovereignty. Now, if, if, if God were like us, the book of Jonah might have ended after verse 3, right? Because the prophet of the Lord rebels against the Lord. And if, you know, if God were like us, who are sort of fickle, we might have just smoked him. We might have said, you want to run? Great, run. I'll give you a 10 second head start. Boom, zap, you're gone. Where's my next prophet? You know, we're, we're very fickle and very quick to give up on people. But praise God, our God is not like that. You know, God doesn't turn his back on this rebellious man, nor does God abandon his purposes or his holy causes. God will not allow us to get away. Uh, God will not allow us to be in the way of what he has planned for his creation. God will not tolerate our no's that we say to him. God is a God who sovereignly pursues his people, even those who are rebellious towards him, so that he might bring about his holy purpose and his holy cause. And I want us to see here as we we look at verse 4, notice the name that, that Jonah uses here. 
It is the Lord, which is God's covenant-keeping name. He says in verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, we see here that this covenant-keeping God doesn't let Jonah go. God is faithful to his promises, even when we as human beings are not faithful to him. Amen? And that's great, wonderful news. And it says here that God hurls the wind upon the sea. Now, that, that word hurl is the same Hebrew word that's used of King Saul. Do you remember when King Saul took his spear and he was in a fit of rage and David was there and he was angry at David? What did he do? Do you remember, kids? He took that spear and he hurled it at King David. He wanted to pin him to the wall. You know, and in the same way, God takes the wind of the sea and he hurls it at this ship. And his target is Jonah. And the storm is so intense. We read in verse four that the ship was about to break up. And so you have this well-constructed vessel that is about to be destroyed by the wind. So what we need to see here is, is that no matter how defiant we are, God's purposes are never thwarted. Actually, they are never even threatened. And I think we need to understand that. You know, sometimes I think we think, oh, well, I, I really messed up God's plans. We never affect the plans of our God. And even though Jonah becomes more and more defiant, God will only uh, not only get through to Jonah, as we're going to see next week, but in the meantime, God will use Jonah to fulfill his purposes, even in spite of Jonah himself. And so God demonstrates his sovereignty and his acts of providence. In other words, God shows his rule. He shows his control over the things through the circumstances of everyday life. And so we see that reality of God's sovereignty. But we also need to see the responses that come as a result of God's sovereignty in verses 5 through 10. We read, first of all, the sailors. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners, kids, the word mariners, that's just a, another word for sailors, okay, that sail on a ship. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, these sailors were like in panic mode. They were like stricken with panic, and we know that because, first of all, they take their cargo and they're throwing it overboard. I mean, this cargo, these boxes or whatever the containers were that they were throwing overboard, this was their livelihood. If they didn't get this cargo to where it was that they were going, they weren't going to get paid. And so it had to take, they had to be highly motivated to want to get rid of this cargo. And about the only thing that would cause them to do that is if they thought that they would lose their life. And so, and they did. And so they threw this cargo overboard. Also, I think we see here that they panicked because they began to pray. I mean, do sailors have a reputation for prayer? Not usually. So they have this interfaith prayer meeting right there on the, the deck of the ship where everyone prays to their own God. And they prayed hoping that whoever's God it was that they ticked off, they could find out who that was and they could appease that God somehow. And so you see here the sense in which the sailors respond to God's sovereign act and they just find themselves helpless. Now, it's interesting as you look at this, and I want to digress just a, a little bit to cover uh, a minor point here that we see in the text. But if you look at this, really the culprits or the bad guys, the guys wearing the black hats, are not the sailors. You know, sailors don't always have the, the greatest reputation sometimes, but they're not the bad guys here. You know, the Lord is bringing this storm against his prophet. 
And, and so Jonah is the one that's sinning, and yet the sailors are the ones who are suffering. And I think we need to be reminded that even in our sin, our sin affects others. And we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, Achan sins, and as a result of Achan's sin, they go to battle, and there are Israelites who are killed. There are families whose husbands and whose sons would not be coming home that night because they died that day in the battle. Why? Because Achan defied the Lord. God said, do not do this, and Achan did it anyway. Or, or King David, who numbers the, the fighting men in Israel, and as a result of that, the Bible tells us 70,000, 70,000 men died as a result of David's sin. Sin never happens in a vacuum. We must not be deceived. Even in our most private sin, it affects other people. Others may not know about our sin, but it always affects others nonetheless. And it may be that there may be someone here today who's living in known sin, but you think you have it under control. It could be anger. It could be pornography. It could be a, a controlling nature. Whatever the sin may be, and you may think, oh, but it's okay. I got it under control. Well, the reality is that nothing could be further from the truth. Your sin will find you out because our sins always affect those around us. And Jonah sins, and, and as a result, the sailors are about on the verge of, of, of drowning. So the sailors were doing everything they could to survive. They were praying. They were throwing their cargo over. And, and then they sort of realized that uh, Jonah had gone down into the boat earlier and he had fallen asleep. He's sort of sleeping like a newborn baby. I mean, he didn't even, didn't even realize what's going on. And we sort of talked about this a little bit last week about how this isn't a, a peace and a sleep that Jonah has because he has a clear conscience. But it is instead, it's an attitude of defiance against the Lord. And his defiance had become so settled in his mind that he was actually able to rest. The, the way we put it last week is, is that he had a seared conscience. That he had uh, defied the Lord even to the point where he had become content. And I think here again, there's, a, there's another warning for us even as uh, those who profess faith in Christ. That we can get to the point in our lives, even in our sin, to where we feel a sense of peace. Have you not known people like that? Maybe someone who says, you know, I just met this person and, uh, you know, I, uh, I know I, I just got a divorce, but, you know, this person is just really the right person for me. And, and I'm going to marry them, even though the Bible would tell them not to get remarried. They still marry that person anyway. Just because they feel that, oh, they have this peace. Well, what we don't understand is that sometimes our conscience can be so seared that there can be a sense in which we have a sense of false peace. And it's really not a peace that comes from the Lord. And yet we oftentimes attribute all of that to God. I mean, I think about the opening chapters of Romans and how Romans talks about there are those who suppress the truth of God. That you can look out the windows, you have permission, you can look out the windows and you can see the creation that God has made and you can see his power and, and, and the mightiness of God and you just, you just cannot help but have to admit that there has to be something that brought this about. This didn't just happen. But there are those who want to suppress that truth. 
Okay, and what is how does Romans describe it? In Romans chapter one, verse twenty one, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you see that? That there's a sense in which they so suppress the knowledge of God that their 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 thinking became futile and they became darkened in their hearts. And so it could be a sense in which as God is bringing the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we, that we rebel against that to the points to where our hearts become hardened against the Lord. Well, the sailors tell the captain that Jonah is asleep. And so we read in verse 6 that the captain goes down and he says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Now, it's interesting that as you look at verse 6 and then you compare that with verse 2, in verse 2, God tells Jonah, arise, cry out, or call out. And in verse 6, the captain tells Jonah the same thing. The very thing that God tells him to do is what the captain tells him to do. What is ironic in this account is that we never read that Jonah does cry out to the Lord. We never actually read anything about Jonah praying at all until we uh, come to what we'll be reading next week. And all through this book, you have pagans calling out to the Lord and everything, but the man of God is the only one that is silent. So Jonah's defiance has rendered him just utterly pathetic, even to the point where he cannot pray. And is that not true that when we rebel against the Lord, that we feel an interruption in our fellowship with him? There's a sense in which we don't even desire to cry out to him. Now, I, I want to say this. I've talked a lot about defiance. I've talked a lot about rebellion. And with Jonah, I mean, he is physically defying the Lord. God says, go that way. And so he goes that way. And our rebellion may not look like that. Our rebellion, our uh, resistance against the Lord may come more, more quietly. It may look a lot more acceptable to the Lord. It may be a rebellion where we just refuse to spend time with the Lord. There's really no place in our lives, maybe other than on Sunday morning, to where we are reading God's word and hearing his voice, where we are praying to him and communing with him. We just live our lives the best way we know how. And there's a sense in which God really has no effect upon our lives. And yet we feel very satisfied with that, even though we don't fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy that presence with him. So we need to be very careful, even as we look at this, to see that, that we can have such defiance as well. Well, anyway, the sailors, uh, in their foregone conclusion, realize that something is causing this storm. And so we read in verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now, kids, lot, uh, lots were like dice. They would like roll the dice and see who they would fall to. And of course, this fell to Jonah. And, and I would suggest to you, and commentators have different opinions about this. They have different opinions about whether Jonah really repented of his sin or not. I have a tendency to believe that, that he did not repent of his sin. And I say that because I, I don't think if he truly was repentant, I think a couple of things would have happened. First of all, they wouldn't have had to roll dice or or roll the lots to see whose fault it was, he would have come up and said, I have sinned against the Lord. I am the one who has caused this. 
Whenever there's a sense of repentance, there's a sense of a change of heart. There's a sense of turning our back upon our sin and walking in obedience. And the other thing, the reason why I don't think that he repented is because there's no sense in this story in which you see Jonah saying to the Lord, I have done wrong. I will now go and preach to Nineveh. You know, I will now obey you, Lord. And so you have instead the sailors having to cast lots. Well, it's no surprise. God is sovereign even over the rolling of dice. We read in Proverbs, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even the casting of lots is controlled by the Lord. And so, you know, a God, in essence, through that practice, reveals Jonah's sin. What do we say? The scriptures talk about how your sins will find you out. Uh, that is because the Lord is the one that reveals that. And he does that to those he loves. He reveals their sins. And we see that immediately Jonah undergoes sort of this interrogation by the sailors in verse 8. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation and where do you come from? What's your country and what people are you of? And then in verse 9, uh, Jonah replies, but remember that as he's replying here, he's not, he's not refused, uh, he, he is still not repented. He said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And so Jonah gives an answer that's not some great affirmation of faith. It sort of sounds like it, you know. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Well, if he so feared the Lord, then why did he not repent before the Lord? But sometimes, you know, we can feel that sense of our religiosity even while we're in the midst of rebellion against the Lord. And we think that our heart is much better than what it is. Really, all he's saying is, you have your gods, and I have, this is the God that I worship. But there's no sense of repentance. And you also don't see uh, uh, Jonah uh, preaching to these sailors at all, or sharing who God is, or calling them to repent of their sin. He doesn't preach to them at all. But this is the very thing that God has chosen Jonah to do, to go and to preach to the pagan nations. Well, we see here that Jonah, even though his heart is disengaged towards God, yet he introduces pagans to the true and the living God. He, he shares with them who it is that is responsible for this. And Jonah identifies, first of all, that God is a covenant-keeping God because he uses the name the Lord and then he says that he is the God of heaven, that he's not some local God, but he is the God who is over all creation, who rules over everything. And to reinforce that, he says that he is the God who's made the sea and dry land. In other words, you know, there is no realm over which he doesn't exercise authority. Even the sea that we are on right now and that is in great turmoil, God is, rules over that. And so the, the sailors respond, they say, uh, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And so the captain now realizes this isn't just a storm that he's fighting, but he recognizes that there's a man on board that has made God angry. And so you see the responses of God's sovereignty in this account. First of all, you see the fear on the part of the sailors as they begin to realize who Jonah's God is. But you also see the hardness of the heart on the part of Jonah, who still doesn't repent. And brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, as a Jew would have read this book, 
they would have been struck by that. They would have been struck by the fact that what was being conveyed to them is here they are Jews. Here they are having received all the blessings of the Lord. And yet the hero of this story is not the man of God of Israel, but instead uh, the ones who are exercising faith are pagans who are putting more faith in God than Jonah is. And so then you see the results of God's sovereignty in verses 11 and following. In verse 11, we see these sailors asking Jonah what to do. And the sailors realize uh, that the storm is, is really uh, about um, the Lord coming against Jonah, that, there ha- that he surely will know what to do. And he does. He says in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will be quiet. It will quiet down for you, for I know It is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So Jonah was saying, in essence, I would rather die than obey the Lord. Um, Which is ironic that Jonah sort of foreshadows Jesus Christ, who says that he would rather obey than live. That our Lord and Savior would be willing to lay down his life that that he might purchase a people for himself. Well, Christian... You know, this is sort of what uh, unrepentant defiance does. It puts us sort of on an accelerated path of self-destruction. And what's so bad is we can oftentimes feel very good about ourselves, even have a sense of peace. But, um, But that's not the case. But praise God, the Lord doesn't leave us to ourselves. God is a God who sovereignly pursues us to call us back to himself. Well, we read in verse 13, It says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. And so it's sort of ironic that Jonah does absolutely nothing in one sense to save these sailors, and yet they're trying to do everything to spare his life. But the sea just grows worse. So finally, the sailors cry out to the Lord in verse 14. And in doing so, they recognize that he is the sovereign one. Now, here again, commentators disagree. Some think that the sailors uh, came to faith in God and, and the Lord. Others do not. Um, I, I have a tendency to believe that they did. And, and the reason I say, and, and, and I say that against, uh, with great fear and trepidation because John Calvin was on the other side of uh, the, the opinion. But, uh, but I do so because as you look at verse 14, even the wording there seems to give us a clue to the condition of their hearts. It says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. But then they say something very specific that has a meaning in the Old Testament. He says, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now that phrase is used numerous times in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah 46, uh, verses 5 through 10, uh, Psalm 115, verses 3 through 4, Psalm 135. And, And in all three of those places, whenever that phrase is used, it's in contrast with pagan idols who are shown to be empty and futile and worthless. And so the language they use is a clue that, that they are turning from their gods and turning to the Lord, not just adding the Lord as another god on the shelf of their gods. And so that's why I, I really believe that they have come to faith in him. But even if not, 
It is true that they were greatly affected by this encounter with the Lord. But then look at verses 15 and 16. It says, So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The other reason I would say that I believe that, that they really truly repented was notice that they made a sacrifice to the Lord, but they did so after the, the sea was calmed. If this was just sort of a, a, a foxhole conversion, if this was a like, Lord, get me out of this difficult thing and then I'll serve you the rest of my life type of conversion, then once the sea was calm, they would have just walked away. But there wasn't that sense. It was like they saw the greatness of the Lord and they, they worshipped him. They, they sacrificed to him. They made vows to him. So this doesn't seem to be just a foxhole conversion. Well, in contrast to the sailors' growing faith, we see Jonah's digression in defying the Lord. But in spite of Jonah and his unwillingness to repent, God accomplished his purpose. Not only is God getting Jonah to Nineveh, as we're going to see next week, uh, but we also see that the sailors come to faith in the Lord. And so the result of God's sovereignty is, is that he continues to accomplish his purposes in, in spite of us. But we need to be very careful as Christians that we not just think, well, then if God's going to accomplish whatever he's going to accomplish and it doesn't matter about me, then I'll just I can live in sin and that's OK. God's going to accomplish his purpose. But, you know, th there's a great warning in the nation of Israel because you saw how God had told the Israelites he would take them into the promised land. They walked just a couple of weeks, made it to the promised land. The people rebelled against the Lord. And what happened as a result of that? All of those people that rebelled that were 20 years of age and older ended up dying in the wilderness, right? They did not get to receive the blessing of the Lord. But 40 years later, God took the next generation of Israelites into the promised land. So God kept his promises. God is faithful. He will accomplish his purposes. But we need to understand that if we rebel against the Lord, there's a sense of suffering. So we must look at it even at our own hearts and sort of contrast ourselves with the sailors in Jonah and to say, where is our heart today? Is our heart given to the Lord? Is there a strand of defiance maybe that is lingering in our hearts? Is there a, a specific sin of which we refuse to repent? Maybe a habit that needs to be abandoned or maybe a lust that mean, needs to be run from. Maybe an ego that needs to be put to death. Maybe a resentment that needs to be crucified. Maybe a jealousy that needs to be confessed. You know, uh, our God is a God who pursues us. And he does so aggressively. You know, I think the other thing a Jew would have thought when they read this account of Jonah is how his death sort of was looking backwards and forwards. As he was cast into the sea, as he was cast overboard, uh, there was a sense in which some suggest that Jonah plays the same role as the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Do you remember what that was? On Once a year, the priest would bring two... Uh, goats before the the people and they would cast lots and one of the goats would be killed 
to pay for the sins of the people. And then the, the uh, priest would lay his hand upon the other goat to like to transfer those sins. And then he would release that goat into the wilderness to show that God uh, removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. That those sins are taken care of. And so Jonah sort of plays that role of the scapegoat. That, that he is sent out and the sea becomes calm to show that God, is, uh, his wrath was appeased. And so in the same way, Christ comes and he is our scapegoat. So as we come today, no matter where we are, we need to understand that God is calling to us right where we are to come to him and to trust in him, to rest in him. If we are here today, even if we are silently defiant against the Lord, we look good here on Sunday morning, but maybe during the week we are wrestling with God. Maybe we are realizing I'm the person that Pastor Rick is preaching to, and I know that God is calling me. Know that he is a sovereign God who is pursuing you and who loves you and calls you to himself. And so this morning, as Jesus calls you to abandon your sinful life and come to him, the question is, will you come? Will you be like the sailors who come to understand not only who God is, but what he requires of them to trust him and to rest in him alone? Or will you be like Jonah, professing to be a follower of Yahweh, but running far from him? Come to Jesus. His purposes will not be thwarted. Let's bow our heads in a time of silence as we meditate upon the word of the Lord this morning. Lord, our covenant God, we thank you that you are God who pursues us. We come to you this day, Lord, thankful that you do not leave us to our own devices, that you do not leave us trapped in the bondage of sin. But God, you work, you deal with our hearts to set us free, that we might stand before you, Lord, enjoying your presence Lord, and not continuing to go downward in, in, in the depths of sin. Father, I pray that you would continue to help us to delight and to give thanks, God, for your wonderful grace and your mercy that you show to us. Now, Lord, as we're going to see next week, even in Jonah, you continue to show that mercy as you deal with this defiant heart. Lord, may you so deal with us as well. We just thank you. And pray this in your name. Amen.